Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show, guys. You'll notice we don't run any ads here, but we do ask for you to pay a simple and small fee. And that fee is this. If you find value in the show, I'm pretty confident in the arcs we have some incredible guests each week, then please share the show. You know, if you're chatting with friends and colleagues about education and development, please recommend us. As I said, you know, we don't run ads here and we continue to grow organically through you, the listener. So please spread the word and help us get this information out to a lot more people. Now, guys, on this week's episode, I am so fortunate to sit down and chat to Luke Sinnott. Now, usually I do a deep dive into my guest's background to provide some bit of background information for you guys before we go on to the show. But I think Luke's story is just so incredible and what he's gone through and come back from is just really inspiring to listen to. So rather than me uh, chat away about, I think I'll let you hear from him in his own words. Okay, so let's dive into this episode now, guys. Evening, Luke, and welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you, John. No problem, Luke. And Luke, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come and sit down and chat to me, dude. And also, I've got to say a big thanks to John Paul for hooking us up to, to chat to each other as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I know JP for a while. So, yeah, it's uh, not a problem at all. Cool. I mean, obviously, once I spoke to John Paul and then having the opportunity to chat to yourself, Luke, you know, really incredible story I wanted to get into. Um, uh, for most most of the guys I've interviewed on the podcast have all been very much, you know, um, medical professionals or SNC professionals as well within that and working within the field of either within the military or within first responder organizations. So given your story, I really wanted to dive in just so what your opinion was and like that process for you as well. So I'm highlighting some stuff here, but I don't want to give too much away on what we'll be chatting about. But I usually kick the podcast off, Luke, by saying, oh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you start out and where you're at. But I think with your story, mate, we'll, we'll flip that completely. And let's just say, let's start from the beginning, mate. And let's just start from, you know, before you came into the military, mate, and, you know, your, your early childhood, if you want, mate. Okay, <laughs> I won't go back too far. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I get what well, I mean, you know, I, I, like a lot of people go through the military route, you sort of, you get the bug early on. Um, and you you try and sort of position yourself in life ready to do it when you're ready. Uh, but for me, actually, it came put more out of the blue, I suppose, because I I went to university, um, did my degree uh, in in economics, nothing nothing at all to do with military or strength conditioning, uh, and I worked in the sailing industry for a couple of years after I left university, sailing boats around for people. Um, you know, generally just spending my time in, in endless summer, uh, which was fantastic. And I, I, I don't know why, I just, it was one of those itches, you know, I thought I, I've got an itch about the military service. I, I wanted to do it. I wanted, I wanted to prove I could do it. Uh, and I, th- I think, you know, I didn't want to look back in life and, and have regret on, on that front. And a lot of my family had, had served at some point. So, you know, it, it was almost in the blood. So I am, um, but they're all Navy. So I, I decided to go Army because I've always been confrontational like that. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I thought my grandfather might be rolling his grave at that one. But, um, you know, I, I thought also the Army was where it was happening. Um, you know, all the conflicts that have been going on uh, so far with, with 
with the forces while I and certainly my generation you know it's all been army focused it's all been land land based stuff um so you know I knew that was where I wanted to be mm-hmm. so I um I jumped off a boat pretty much and uh went to Sandhurst in in um 2006 um still had long floppy hair sunglass sunglasses uh, tan line in my face and um you know sort of a that innocent twinkle in my eye that the uh, the color sergeants can't wait to get stuck into when you get sanders and uh, a year of well i can only describe as sort of um boarding school on crack basically sanders mm-hmm. was just an intense year of training um getting you ready for leadership and um being commissioned into the royal engineers um in uh, a year later uh and you know I, i think that was that was the right place for me it was a good fit for me you know i was quite I quite like a varied role and that's certainly what the sappers offered you you know you you I went into initially into the armored role but I, I was doing light role I was doing construction I was I was doing all kinds of stuff in that first two years mm-hmm. I had a unit as well that were, were deploying to Iraq as well and uh, so I just caught the back end of that so you know they were they were a busy unit um, and after 18 months with them I um posted over to uh 2-3 engineer regiment quite wanted to have a I wanted to have a crack at P company mm-hmm. um unusual route to go going from armored to to light roll uh, airborne but um it is what again one of those itches I had to scratch uh and training for that was quite uh, quite an intensive program as well you know it wasn't so much the the process of once you got into the um airborne train uh, airborne process so when you went to uh, your royal engineer beat up the new brigade beat up and then p company itself it's quite a long long journey mm-hmm. there's also all the time before that running up and down the hills and Salisbury plain you know doing a few trips over to brecon and and doing some proper hill training over there you know it was quite quite an intense program while trying to do my job as well at the same time Uh, so it was a bit of a kick in the teeth when I, I posted to two three and then got um, re-rolled into a squadron for three three engineer regiment, uh, which is the counter ID guys, mm-hmm. and got pulled back from P Company to go and do my search course in in Chatham. Uh, so, so it was sort of midway through P Company, which was a, again you know a real bitter pill to swallow. But you know, at the end of the day, you you, know, you got to do what you're told. You know, you're yeah. you're there serving. At the whim of the people above you and um you know whatever you may want doesn't always fit the bigger picture so i went off did my search course uh and was lining up for herrick 13 as a um a search advisor so being a team of guys looking for ieds um with the with the airborne guys ironically uh so i was deploying with with the um two and three power mm-hmm. uh so yeah i started preparing for that and obviously you know you go through the process of getting guys ready for um uh serving in Afghanistan you know it's it's um it it's definitely a role different to Iraq in Afghanistan because it was a very light role based um deployment you know and it wasn't Iraq was all about you know movement from base to from base to base mm-hmm. uh whereas Afghanistan was about trying to hold the ground Um, and so you were going to be on your feet a lot, which means a lot of the guys had to be prepared to be carrying a lot of weight, uh, particularly in our role of counter ID. You know, we'd be on the ground for quite a long time. Uh, we'd be carrying very heavy equipment. We'd have ladders, you know, you, you name it, we were carrying it. Um, and so the guys had a lot of weight to carry while also performing a, a pretty long, arduous job as well, just searching the ground. 
Um, so yeah, we, we went through a big fitness program for that as well. Um, and so uh, we deployed to Afghanistan in November uh, 2010. Uh, and we, sorry, not November, September, September 2010. Uh, we got out there, quick, pretty quick turnaround because being at time out in Afghanistan then, we were getting a lot of ID problems in, in all over Afghanistan, but Helmand particularly, you know, we, we had it really bad. And so the, the teams that were sent in to do counter ID were in high demand. So you, you didn't have time to hang around in camp and, and dwindle or anything. They, they needed you out on the front line. Uh, so we had a week's, a week's package prepping us and then we were straight out there, um, my team and, um, and I. And uh, we moved into um, FOB Price, which was um, the Danish Battle Group's HQ. And we started operating out of there. Uh, and it was quite, it was high intensity. There was a lot going on. A um, lot, lot of devices being found, a lot of big devices as well, because effectively we were trying to keep a lot of the main highways that came through Helmand came through our, our area of responsibility and all the way sort of up into Kabul. And so these routes were getting used a lot. And so we were out constantly pulling some bloody big devices out from under the roads um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the surrounding area as well. And trying to trying to do a little bit of hearts and minds and keep schools open, you know, because obviously they were a high target for, for the IDs. Um, and, and about uh, <clears throat> about a, a month into the tour, we, we lost a guy from our team. He was he was blown up in front of us all uh, during an operation. Um, and then a month later, uh, I was injured um, working out of a, a camp called uh, Rahim. Um, which was a little bit it was sort of the northern edge of our area of responsibility. And we were in there helping out a, a British infantry unit, the Irish Guards, who were, again, you know, just absolutely caked in IEDs. It was just one of those, one of those times in, in Afghanistan where we definitely lost the battle on the ground for the IEDs. Uh, mm. And this unit had been completely confined to camp because they had IEDs almost on their doorstep. And in fact, one of their patrols had been, had lost a guy walking out of the camp patrol base door um, on a patrol, literally meters walking out. Um, so they, we were called in because basically they were really struggling to get any kind of mobility in the area. And they had a local um, guy who had been really peed off by the whole situation. I think he'd lost a few kids to these IEDs and he was quite keen to, to see a lot of them removed. So we, we were in doing that. Um, and, you know, day one, we must have pulled about five or six of these things out of the ground. And we'd, we'd only arrived about three o'clock in the afternoon and we'd barely gone 50 metres from the camp wall. Yeah. Uh, so the next day when I got injured, we were dealing with the first device of the day. And, and um, it was a second device that we hadn't found yet that, that activated and took my legs. Uh, so, yeah, it was pretty intensive couple of months that Afghanistan, I must admit. Um, mm -hmm some rough time, rough time. And I think, you know, not many people look back over that period and weren't in some way going through similar situations on tour because it, they were rough times in Afghanistan. You know, the IEDs, the, we were also getting a lot of small arms fire. You know, it was, they were really pushing us hard then the Taliban for quite a few, you know, for quite a few years after that as well, uh, before it sort of settled down a bit. Um, certainly some of the most connected periods we've had 
Nepal and Afghanistan. So, and I, and I remember, you know, the hospital, when I, when I woke up in hospital, it, it didn't look like we were doing well in Afghanistan. You know, mm -hmm. most of the beds were occupied by British soldiers missing limbs. Um, and they were coming in thick and fast every day. Um, so, you know, you, you were lying in the hospital bed thinking, you know, Jesus, this is not looking good for us. Yeah. You know, um, we, we don't operate in particularly big, you know, we've got one battle group out in Afghanistan, uh, you know, 10,000 odd people. And, and of that, you know, probably 50% are out the front line. Mm -hmm. So, so we, you know, by attrition, you know, we're losing a lot of guys. Um, and it, you know, wasn't, it wasn't great that period in hospital either, you know, just be sat there seeing countless guys coming in, some you knew, some you didn't, you know, um, bit of a, a rough period as well. But, you know, Birmingham did a great job. They, um, I uh, woke up in, in hospital after a two week coma. Um, and I remember, um, so the first person I saw was my, my wife. And, uh, you know, I knew, I knew what would happen. You know, I, I was awake when I got blown up. I was conscious right up until they put me on the back of the helicopter. And then, you know, whether, whether they knocked me out or or I passed out, I don't know. But I, I certainly um, had a sort of vivid dream of what had happened from the moment I hit the back of that that uh, helicopter to the moment I woke up two weeks later. Uh, right, I mean, they, they use a really horrible cocktail of drugs to keep you under and ketamine features quite heavily in that. So I was having some very horrible dreams. I mean, I dreamed I was in surgery. They were operating, taking, taking my legs off and I was awake. <laughs> Nobody... Nobody seemed to be that bothered about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I was sort of like, excuse me, uh, I'm awake here. They're, they're almost like, shh, you know, we're trying to concentrate here. Um, and I, I really felt that had happened. When I woke up two weeks later, I really thought that had happened. And when I saw a surgeon, I thought I recognised. I really gave him the daggers sort of thing. Like he, I'm sure he was looking at me like, what the hell's wrong with that guy? You know, but, uh, you know, it just, you know, just goes to show, you know, just how, how potent that stuff is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. For for that then, Luke, as well, like you're saying, you're under for two weeks after the after the incident, and then waking up in Birmingham. Your your trip home then, did they get you straight from Afghanistan and in, into Birmingham? Was that stop off in Germany to stabilise further, and then back home into onto British soil? I think um, for me, as far as I'm aware, because you come home, you get a little book, yeah. uh, back book, which which sort of details all the people that are involved in your process to get you home. And my, my, I think they've got into a second book for me. Um, uh, and as far as I'm aware, I, I, they got me into Bastion w w within about 25 minutes. You know, they, they had a, a helicopter in pretty quick. Mm -hmm. um, it was, and I remember it was a Chinook that took me off the ground. Um, and so I've gone into the back and they're like an operating theatre on the back straight away. So they've got me into Bastion. And I think in Bastion, it's just life-saving. That's all they're trying to do. Uh, so I think the legs have come off at that point, you know, and clean, cleaned up as quick, as best as possible. And the other thing they were trying to do is save my left arm. It's quite severely damaged, the left arm. I, I mean, my, I've all plated around the wrist where my hand got blown up the side of my arm effectively and it took all the flesh off the inside of my arm very, very lucky to keep it so I think they worked really hard nearly 24 hours solid just operating on me I think they were just rotating surgeons through trying to save the arm and life and whatever they could do uh, so once they sort of stabilized me as best they could then they flew me back to Bastion sorry to, to Birmingham 
Um, and, and as far as I'm aware, you land in Birmingham, there's a military ambulance comes to meet you and they blue light you all the way to the, uh, to the hospital. And for me, um, they'd opened up the new Queen Elizabeth about mm-hmm. six months before, a year before I was injured. So I went straight into that one uh, and straight onto the, um, the critical ward uh, where I think, you know, amazing, amazing care, you know, 24 seven nurses watching over you. I think they were shaving me, uh, <laughs> washing me all down while I was asleep. So when I woke up, it was clean shape, probably the cleanest shaving I've been in a while because in Afghan, you know, you didn't really shave much, but I had cut hair and, and a shaved face when I woke up. Um, so, uh, you know, really, you know, it, it was five star uh, service in there. But uh, when I came round um, two weeks later, you know, they again through everything that's happened um, and they're saying, you know, how various people have been involved in your journey back. Uh, and to go through the book and have a look, you know, and, and I was amazed, you know, just just how much happened in in mainly in that first twenty four hours. The amount of people, hundreds of people involved in the process. Um, so pretty pretty amazing. Incredible. And obviously, in Birmingham, Queen Elizabeth. What was those early days like? Just you know, from getting stabilised and then that beginnings of those rehab processes for you. Yeah, I suppose I'm quite impatient. I never, never felt like it moved fast enough for me. Um, so when I first came round, um, I, I, you know, I wanted to. They had me on a, a breathing apparatus because my lungs were really damaged. Uh, unbeknown to me, they'd actually had to make some pretty bold decisions about what to do with me because I think I was very close to dying because my lungs had been so badly damaged by the blast. So they had me on a on a this breathing apparatus, which was forcing oxygen into my into my lungs. And I felt so uncomfortable with that. And I was like, I'm ready to breathe on my own. Uh, and they had all these exercises they had me doing, trying to, to get the lungs to open up a bit um, and get my O2, my O2 numbers. They were obsessed with my O2 numbers. If I didn't get above 95%, they were like, you're not coming off that mask. Uh, so I was, if I uh, if I felt I was being lazy with my breathing, I could actually visibly see my O2 numbers drop and I'd like, sort of, We'll get back on it again. Yeah. Um, so you know, that very early on, I remember that just that just being horrific. You know, that was sort of close to close to pushing me over the edge that bit actually, because it was you were just permanently dry and it wouldn't let you eat any fluids. You obviously, um, you know, you got fluids being injected into you, food being injected into you. So you know, it's no it's no kind of living really at that point. And so two or three days of that, I was I was ready to throw in the towel if I'm honest. Um, mm-hmm. But pure piggy determination I managed to get that O2 number up and they took me off the the big black mask which I yeah. it was just a, like a gimp thing it was horrible uh, <laughs> so I had to see the end of that and just get the straw under the nose that felt really good just to have the, the little straw and you know they were constantly threatening to put me back on the black ball if I didn't um, if I didn't keep breathing well and keep my O2 numbers up so I remember that early on and, and I remember thinking right I'm breathing now I want to get I want to get out of the bed because I'd been laying in bed for for three weeks at that point and you can you can just feel the sores all over your body uh and i remember they got me out of my bed probably a couple of days after i'd asked a few times i pretty much asked every doctor and nurse that would listen uh, and they got me out and i remember i remember sitting in my chair feeling amazing and then about an hour about 
five minutes later, just throwing my guts up and getting dizzy spell and, and hitting the buzzer going, yeah, put me back in bed. Um, yeah, but it was a small, you know, it was a small gain at that point and it felt fantastic. Um, but it made me realise these doctors know what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> they're saying, don't, you're not ready yet. And you're like, no, I'm ready. Get me up there. Um, and so they, yeah, it went like that my whole time. I was, in, I was in hospital for nine weeks in total. And it was always me pushing to get something and them eventually letting up and then me going, sorry, you were right. I shouldn't have done that, you know. Um, but I think that it, they, I had to, you know, I think they realised I had a lot of oomph about me and I, I wasn't going to take this line down. Um, I remember quite early on the physio came in quite early on. Uh, obviously, the arm was quite badly damaged and they needed to, to get that moving. Um, so physio did a lot of work with me and I, I was quite keen to get down into the gym as well. They had a, they had a really good physio suite at, at um, Birmingham and I think within about two weeks, I pretty much had all the surgery they needed to give me at that stage to save my arm. And so they were happy for me to start moving around using it. And so I was doing some stuff, but really, really low level stuff with the physio in the gym uh, and just getting some mobility. Um, because they're not going to leave, let you leave hospital until you can move yourself around a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was really struggling to, to do that. I mean, at first, they to, to get me moving, they, it used to take about four or five nurses or physios or doctors, whoever, to slide me across into whatever they wanted to put me in, a chair or wheelchair, whatever it may be. So I remember the process of trying to get into a wheelchair was a real ball ache to start with. And moving about, you know, as, as it went on, it got less and less people less equipment, you know, hoists and whatever to get you to get you where they wanted uh, until it got to a point where I had like a banana board and I could just slide across it with my, you know, using my one good arm to get across. And then I had a, an electric chair. I used to drive all over uh, Birmingham. Um, I used to take it everywhere. Any time they let me out of hospital, I'd be gone and they'd be looking for me for my, because they had your meds every sort of four hours you had to take. There'd be, there'd be a pile of them on my desk and they'd be looking for me. They'd be putting calls out across the hospital to get me back in. And I think they even came in once, got me out of a pub. I was in a pub with a few friends and they <laughs> came and got me and made me come back. There was an injection or a doctor that wanted to talk to me. Um, and so I, yeah, so I, I early on realized, um, you know, it was all about pushing the boundaries of this stuff. If you were gonna get anywhere, you have to push the boundaries. And they, they were quite, they really wanted me to stay in an electric chair. Um, but I was like, no, I need to get, I wanna get manual on a wheelchair that someone's even got half a hope of picking up because I remember this this electric chair that looked, looked like something out of a James Bond villain thing you know it was a massive beast of a thing and it was it was back a four-man pickup so I said I need a chair that you know I can pop in a car and you know my wife can pop it in a boot and then we can go somewhere so uh, they gave me this one-arm drive wheelchair which you, you you could do it all from one arm um, and I started using that around the hospital and that really, you know, that was my first real kind of good workout was mm -hmm. just trying to get around with this, this one wheelchair. Uh, and then as soon as they would, I, I, they started letting me use my left arm. I, I got into a wheelchair that required both arms, you know, and that was, that was a great moment, you know, to be able to use that arm a bit, you know, I mean, it was rubbish, but I, I could, I could get myself along in the flat, any hills I was buggered, uh, particularly if I went down a hill, I wouldn't be able to, Problem is, if you're trying to stop a wheelchair on one wheel because you've got the grip on the other one, you just end up doing circles. So, <laughs> so I end up like spinning down hills. Uh, <laughs> if I made it down the hill, I'd normally fall out halfway down, um, much to the horror of people around me. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, you know, it was it, 
it was a hard period. It was a tough period. Um, but I, I, I made some decisions while I was in hospital. I sort of, you, one thing you've got in hospital is time to, yeah. to think things over. And, you know, something pretty horrific has happened. You know, there's no, there was no getting away from that. Um, you could stare at the clock all you wanted and try and reverse time. It wasn't going to happen. So you had to make peace of it. And uh, I decided early on that I was going to do something pretty big and pretty positive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I started researching Paralympic sport and Paralympics and, and uh, really try to part, make a pathway for myself. That's awesome, dude. And I mean, it, it's incredible to go through something like that and then start looking ahead and be like, right, what can I do from this, you know, and take this forward? And that's something I really want to pick uh, into in a little bit. But obviously, you were saying you were nine weeks in hospital at Queen Elizabeth. And then did you transfer from Queen Elizabeth up to Headley at that point? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, it was Headley Court at its worst, really, because it was packed to the rafters and didn't have the space. Um, but yeah, I was literally straight from Birmingham to, um, to Headley Court. Uh, and they, they take you in an old military ambulance. So it took like eight hours to get down. Seriously. And in true, in true hospital fashion, obviously discharging you, even though they don't know it's coming, they, they make you wait around most of the day before they let you go because of one signature or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. And um, so I didn't get to Headley Court, leaving Birmingham quite late. We didn't get there till gone midnight. And I remember arriving there, sort of put your pull, pull up the driveway, you know, very fancy big house. And then you're like, oh, well, am I staying here? And then they take you around the back to some port cabins. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, and you get, you literally get signed for by a nurse, like a nurse sort of signs for you and goes, come on, then like a bag of post, you know, and they just take you into the, into the um, accommodation block. And there's a there's four man rooms everywhere. Mm -hmm. All three, all three of the other guys are snoring their heads off, and, and she's like, "Right, get some sleep." Eight o'clock roll call in the morning, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, um, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know how any of this works yet." So basically, you you sort of you're proper deer in the headlights, you know, but you you're fully aware of the fact because you know guy, the guys are great; they get around you in hospital and they they tell you all about what's coming up at Henley Court. You know, they come in on their legs and show you what you'll be doing. And so you know you know what's going to happen at Henley Court. So you want it, you know, you really want it because you, you want to move forward as quickly as possible. You want to get out of this rut that you're in and you want to start getting on the legs, getting on better wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was sort of, I made a decision like, right, I'll just follow the guy who looks like he knows what he's doing in the morning, which is pretty much military life, I think. Just yeah. follow the guy who looks like he knows what he's doing. And sometimes it's you. So <laughs> sometimes people follow you. Uh, so I... I woke up in the morning, like everyone, everyone was up really. I don't think anyone really slept that well at Headley Court. You know, it was, everyone was on a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of noises, you know, a lot of guys who were in a lot of pain all through the night and you can hear them in discomfort, you know, so it's, it's, it's a hard environment to be in. But what you do is you go through a whole day's rehab, wear yourself out so much that you just, you're just dead to the world by the evening. Uh, and that's, that's how you get through it really. So I woke up in the morning, there's, there's like guys hopping around on one leg or, you know, most of the guys in my room were, were missing both legs. Some, some of them were missing the arm as well, like triple amputees. And we head off, um, I follow them down, sort of do quick intros and then head down to registration. And, and I remember that the, uh, the hall, the accommodation was right at the other end of the building and the hall we registered in was, was right by the front of the building. 
So you had a long journey, lots of ramps up and down to get there. So that was a bloody, I remember that, that being really hard work. And I, I was still bleeding from quite a few wounds and quite healed. So I, I left this dribble of blood all the, all the way up to the, uh, to the main hall. And it had these big automatic doors. They sort of constantly opening and closing these guys coming in and out. So you went round the, round the corner and these doors opened up and there was everyone. Everyone was in there sort of laughing and, you know, moving around and doing their thing. Uh, and that was, that was it. That was the moment where I was like, yeah, I'm in the right place. You know, I could see guys. It was like the evolution of the injured soldier. You had guys like me, broken, limbs missing, still bleeding, plasters all over them, looking emancipated. And then you had the guys who were walking around on legs, you know, sort of playing around with basketball, shooting a hoop. Mm-hmm. on his new on his new running leg and you're like well yeah this is it like, that's where you want to be um and that you know fantastic fantastic to to see that because it's been coming for so long you know you've spent so long in hospital wanting this uh but very quickly you realize you you know you're taking on a big a big journey and i mean those early days then at headley what, what was that rehab process like for you? You know, how long was it from just getting there and doing, was it more general rehab? And then again, you step again to your prosthetic legs after that? Um, so I think the first person I met actually was JP. Okay. Um, obviously, nurses, nurses aside, I, I spent a lot of my time with the nurses early on because I had a lot of wounds that still needed changing out and stuff. So, but I, JP was the first person I met. And so straight off the bat, you're into your SNC program mm-hmm. and they're what they're doing is they're going right you've got to learn how to walk you've got to learn how to uh use a wheelchair better you know you've got all this stuff you need to do and the only way you're gonna be able to do that is if you're conditioned for it because uh, you've been laying in your hospital bed for the last however many weeks uh and you're in no physical state to do this however you were before you got injured it doesn't matter because you're now a new person and we need to get you back there again. And it made sense, totally made sense. And uh, so, you know, we started, like, JP was very good. We started very tenderly on the, well, as tenderly as JP could be anyway, but we started very, you know, small steps, just getting the basics there. You know, I remember spending a lot of time trying to balance them on BOSU balls, you know, trying to work the core, core stability. Um, and I think, you know, within about two weeks, I was up on my first set of legs. And so even that little bit of S&C work I'd done had really, really sort of got me in a position where I could stand on those legs because I was in no state to do it when I first walked through the door. Uh, and I remember, yeah, amazing, you know, being up on, your, on a little set of legs for the first time, but also incredibly painful. And I remember thinking, <clears throat> if this is what I've got to look forward to, I don't think this is going to be a good fit, you know, and I, and I think every amputee goes through that, you know, they think this is incredibly painful because you're suddenly going from sitting in a comfortable chair to standing, which feels so good, but taking the weight in places your body has never taken direct body weight before, you know, trying to take weight through your hips, all your body weight through your hips. And particularly as it's, it's not going to be spread that well it's going to be probably sticking in one particular point that's particularly tender you know mm-hmm. particularly like around your around your, your glutes and stuff uh, and finding a you know a nerve that happens to run down between a muscle and a bone you know and it's going to you're going to be sitting right on that you know it's, it's some really agonizing moments in prosthetics and it takes a long time 
a lot of trial and error to work out what works best for you because as you can imagine everyone's different and uh no one socket is the same if i picked up someone else's socket i'd know straight away even though they will look quite similar yeah i'd know straight away because we, we spend hours just trimming little bits off here and there to make sure we get the right fit mm -hmm. uh, so yeah it was um yeah that was a tough 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 first uh, week at Headley court but you know there, there's a lot there's a lot going on around that and i think you know i like an adventure i think most people do that join the forces and uh you know Headley court was a good place to do that because there was a lot of stuff going on around Headley court that gave you that drive that sort of thing to aim for um and there were posters up all over the place of guys learning to fly guys learning to to run guys learning to ride hand bikes and stuff you know so it was all there you know those are the tech i mean those are the sort of the low end ones like, there's some pretty amazing stuff going on uh and so you were seeing this stuff going right i just you know that, that's the goal to pick one of these these endeavors and uh, and see how you get on yeah nice man nice and i mean you know will impact so i think you've picked off quite a few of those endeavors now as well mate you know you've just really pushed on with it yeah. but you were saying when you were back at Queen Elizabeth, you had a thought about you want to make that move into athletics and, you know, really push yourself. Did you bring that up to JP when you were at Headley and say, look, this is the goal I want to get to? Or was it just a case of, right, let's get through this rehab process first? And that came later down the line. Um, so <laughs> I, when I was doing my research in the hospital, I, I, I mean, again, I was on a, there was a lot of drugs involved in that initial period in hospital. Uh, I, I got very stuck on pole vaulting. I, I don't know why. I was only a week after being injured and I thought, there's no amputees doing pole vaulting. That must be an easy win. Yeah. And I've always wanted to be, I've always wanted to have a go at pole vaulting. Um, so I was really stuck on that. And I don't, I don't know if I told JP that, like the whole Birmingham hospital had heard of this guy with no legs who said he was going to be a pole vaulter. Um, and I don't know if I came to my senses when I got to Henley Court, I thought I'd better not push that one because mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I might uh, they might um, think there's something mentally wrong with me and get me sent off to the to the loony bin. Uh, but I, I don't I don't remember if I did or didn't. But I I, I definitely said to JP early on, you know, I, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go for Paralympic sport. He's a bit hand biking mad, JP. So yeah. I think he early on was like, well, what about hand biking? Um, but I, I quite early on, as I'd said, I'd, I'd come from the sailing world. And so I had, I had quite a few you know, thousands of miles of experience and a bit, a lot, quite a bit of racing experience. So British Sailing actually contacted me and said, you know, do you want to do some parasailing? Because they had a program at the time and, uh, and they, they had they had they had quite a lot of success in Paralympic sailing. The British squad. I mean, they they won the first ever gold medal when they when they ran the Paralympics in Atlanta, I think it was. Uh, so you know they had good pedigree, and they were like, you know, this could be a good fit for you. And I, and I think I forgot about everything else I was thinking. I just went, yeah, it seems like a a good route to get to the Paralympics. So I, I went for sailing, and and it, you know what, it was it was wasn't the right sport for me. But it was a good, it was a good tool mm -hmm. for my rehab. It became the the whole reason my rehab went well. So I think JP again early on, I said to JP, I'm going to go sailing, and he was like, right, okay, let's think about the mechanics in the boat, what you're going to need to be using, uh, you know, and a lot of it is shoulder work, pulling ropes, but also you know we're, we're sort of on our on our 
legs sometimes, depending on what boat we were sailing in, we'd be on our legs, so we'd need you know a lot of stability as well. because uh, a boat's doing that and you're and you're on prosthetic legs that don't like uneven ground at the best of times, let alone moving ground. Uh, so you know we had a lot of work to do there. J, JP was was quite good on that front. Um, and he definitely did help us in some respects to 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 be able to move that boat as well as we did. Because it wasn't just me, it was um I went over to British sailing. There was a triple amputee already there, a guy called Craig Wood. He was sailing. We all started off in these single map boats called 2.4s. So he was already sailing one of those. I came along and started sailing a 2.4. And then a guy called Steve Palmer came along and he started sailing 2.4. All, all of us injured in Afghanistan, all of us missing legs above the knees. And then we went in and, and started sailing a boat together called the Sonar. Uh, and we competed for a couple of years uh, on that. But, it, you know, it, as I say, like the, the fact I was, what sport I'd chosen didn't really matter. What was really good was that the sailing really made it important that I was on my legs. Mm-hmm. If I turned up in a wheelchair to go sailing, yeah, I could do it, but I'd need a lot of help. Uh, and people would have to put the boat together for me and, you know, take my wheelchair away. Because if you left it on the pontoon, you could guarantee it'd end up in the water at some point. Um, and then come back and get me out of the boat again, or help me get out of the boat, help me put it all away again. As soon as I got on my legs, um, I didn't need help. And I, and I think like any young guy that, that finds himself with disability early on, that's a big thing. The independence is massive. You know, you don't you don't want to have to admit that you need help early on. Um, so to have that to have that ability to fix that. I knew it was only going to come from from a lot of work in my rehab at Headley Court. So that that sailing really drove my rehab. And very early on, I was where everyone else was still in wheelchairs and, and accepting the fact I, I wouldn't accept it. I wouldn't I wouldn't have it. And very quickly, I was like, right, the wheelchair's gone. If I'm going sailing, it's legs only, uh, so I can get around and do what I need to do. You know, and by the time by the time I I finished my sailing stuff. I was, myself and the lads, all three of us were on legs by that point. We were doing all the work on the boat. We were putting it together, hoisting it up on the crane, putting it in the water, getting on the boat, driving it to competitions. You know, we had a we had a vehicle that we um, we towed the boat around with, you know. So we were fully independent by the time I left that sailing programme. And, and sailing drove that and Headley Court facilitated that. And all the team around that, the, the physios, the... Um, occupational therapists and particularly strength and conditioning they all understood this was what I wanted to achieve and so where where you'd be sat at Headley Court I, I, I'd hear conversations other guys were having they'd be like yeah I just want to hoop in my, my apartment or whatever you know I'd be like I've got a competition in two weeks I need to be back on my legs because I've got to fly over there and I need to take all my kit and I need to get down the pontoon which wobbles so I need a good leg for that you know and, and they'd be like well this is brilliant you know this this guy doesn't need motivating to get better. We've almost got to hold him back, you know. And I, and I think that's what I think that's what they wanted in a patient. You know, they wanted someone that they had to rein in a little bit. And I and I know I needed reining in quite a bit. Um, particularly, I, I know the surgeons used to get a bit annoyed with me. They'd be kind of right, Luke. Um, you've got to have this surgery now. You can't put it off any longer. But we we've been waiting to, for you to come in and get this surgery. And I knew that would be six weeks out. Uh, and then also the time it takes to to get rehabbed and to get the legs back on again. So you'd have to plan a good three months in. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'd be looking at my sailing calendar going, well, I can't do it then, I can't do it then. And then and I'd be dictating to the surgeon when I'd come in for surgery. <laughs> They'd be like, well, I just, I, you know, I give up. Like, you tell me when you want to come in, we'll make it work. You know, that, that was a fantastic place to be. Um, and I think it just meant when, whenever they were operating on you uh, and working on you, they knew you were putting in 100% to get this right. So, you know, almost in their mind, they were like, this guy, he's, he's 100% on this. I need to make sure my game is 100% for this because, you know, otherwise we really are going to mess up his rehab, you know, because he's got, he's got a very tight program. I mean, I remember my, um, I had to go in um, for surgery because I had an infection in my leg. It got really bad. Um, and uh, I was, I was, pus coming out my leg everywhere you know it's just one of those one of those unfortunate ones where some of the shrapnel had managed to escape the first clean out they did uh, and so they I ended up losing a little bit off my leg and and had quite a lot of surgery to fix it probably about three or four bouts of surgery uh, and I remember I was in Brighton where I lived at the time and and I was going a little bit doolally so my wife sent me off to she called the ambulance and they came and got me when yeah he's he's I was talking gibberish and and obviously I was, the infection had got quite bad uh so they took me to hospital and they didn't know what to do with me at Brighton hospital they were kind of like we've never seen this before a guy with no legs you know talking gibberish and passing out of his, his wound uh and they just freaked out and so I managed in some sort of uh coherence to tell them call Birmingham hospital and they did and, and luckily they got hold of one of the um military specialists there and they said right package him up send him over to Birmingham we'll, 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 we'll look at him we'll get him mm-hmm. sorted and, they, and I did they, sh- they shot me up there and still with the open wounds when they tried to clean me up a little bit and they and they went to town on me and, and did what they could uh, and fixed me up and I remember um, it, it wasn't in my plan you know to have this surgery and I remember the surgeon sort of fixing me up a bit I say look I've, I've got stuff on uh uh, and I need to get back to do this at least. And he was like, okay, all right. He's like, well, I need to operate on you next week. I said, well, can I go home for the weekend and come back on Monday and you can operate? And he was like, this is very unorthodox, but <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's important to you. So go on then. And he, and he let me, I, started, I had to keep all the tags on me and everything, um, but he let me go and I came back on Monday. Uh, and again, you know, it was, it, it made me more geared up to get better. You know, sort of knowing that I had a little bit of um, a control over my over my medical side of things. You know, sometimes you can almost feel like medically things are happening, and and you've got to wait, and you've got to do this, and and you've got no control over it. So it was nice to feel that at that point in my rehab, I had an element of control. I don't think I'd get that kind of control normally. I think it was a very exceptional circumstance. You know, it was. We were loads of us coming back from Afghanistan, injured. You pretty much had a hospital geared up with a whole wing, geared up to, to facilitate you getting better. And a heavy court, you know, so we had some big hitters in our corner. Uh, and so I think that was the only reason I was allowed to do what I did. Um, but it worked, you know, for me, rehab-wise, that, that really worked. That's awesome, dude. And obviously you're saying, you know, you took your rehab and you went into sailing for a number of years and that so where where did that interest then suddenly spark to get back into the athletic side you know do you still have that dream of Paul Volton or you know what drew you back (laughs) well I remember um I I had to go in for some surgery again this is a common theme in most amputees lives 
is at some point surgery does have to happen. And I remember having to have surgery on my left leg because um, I had some anomas, uh, like clumps of nerves that were just, it, it was like someone stabbing you in the leg every time you tried to walk. And it gets to a point where you can only tolerate it so much for you that I've, I've got to get something done. And I remember I was due to go to the World Championships in Canada. Yeah, this was the first year of the Invictus Games. It must have been 2014. Mm -hmm. I the first Invictus Games. Because I remember the Invictus Games were on uh, and I was meant to be going out to Canada. So I, was skip I wasn't doing the Invictus Games, but I was going to the World Champs. So I went in for surgery um, and unfortunately something didn't go right some bits went wrong and so that that finely balanced program I was so obsessed with keeping uh, just got completely blown apart um, uh, you know it was rough that was rough I think at that point I've been riding along on this sort of way very working out and I'm just managing to get stuff fitted in you know throwing rehab in around saving competitions and stuff and other other things I was learning how to fly as well um, during my rehab as well so I had a lot going on I don't know why my wife put up with me because um, we also had our first kid in, in 2013. So, you know, it wasn't like we didn't, didn't have a lot on our plate. Uh, and I, <clears throat> I remember being in hospital, not able to go to World Championships, watching the Invictus Games on TV, so seeing lots of friends, you know, competing. And just remember thinking, well, I've, made some, I've made some bad decisions here, you know. And I think when things don't go your way, it's very easy to be kind of, bitter and pissed off and get really twisted up about the whole thing but I was like you know I need to make some changes I need to avoid this situation again because you do you know you, you're never gonna you're never always gonna make, make the right decisions that's just that's just life um but it's how you cope with the bad moments that really sort of make you a better athlete uh, so I, I was sat there thinking about it and I made a decision that sailing wasn't the right thing for me um I think I think I realised having kids as well. We had a second one on the way at that point as well. I remember thinking, you know, with two kids and a sailing team that depend on me and other commitments outside of that and still having surgery going on, I sort of made a decision that I, I don't think I was going to be the right person for the team. I was more worried about letting the team down about than what was right for me. Uh, so I made the call to, to pull out the sailing and I, and I remember one of the teammates coming to see me and I, I remember saying that now I'm, I'm thinking about this because um, they were getting set to go to Canada and they had to get a replacement uh, and I was you know really you know, I felt really bad about the whole thing but he totally got it he was like you know it's not right for you it's not right for you it's it, and I and I made a decision to pull out of of the, the program and it was it wasn't a bad call in the end because I, I think about Six months later, they announced that sailing was no longer going to be in the program for um, the Paralympics. So I sort of I jumped ship, not even realizing that. Um, and but it actually turned out to be a really good move um, because I'd have been stuck on a program that had no no ending really. Um, so I left uh, in, in 2014. Left the sailing in 2014. We had our we had our second child and. I've been looking around, you know, I, I sort of, I hadn't let go of that Paralympic bug, but I was looking around thinking there's got to be something that works for me. And para I, I realised, when I was going through the sailing, I realised I'd gone into a lot of these events and seeing people that did really well in the sailing, it was because their disability fitted it really well. 
And I think I realised quite early on, you've got to find the right sport for your disability. It doesn't matter how strong you are or how quick you are. It's all about how your disability best complements that. Mm-hmm. And because of the extent of damage in my left arm, I thought, well, I'm never going to be a brilliant wheelchair athlete. You know, if I was going to do wheelchair racing or wheelchair basketball, I was always going to be held back by this left arm. But one thing I could do was run. And I had pretty good limbs left on, or, or from, from the blast, you know, and I, and I was very good at walking and, and very strong. And I thought, well, that, that must fit nicely with running. So I, um, I'd actually started running while I was at Headley Court. They, they are quite particular about when they let you run. So they sort of have a, a process of things. You, you, you start off on your little stubby legs, they grow your stubby legs, they get you onto the bigger legs with the knee joints. And then when you've been on your big legs full time uh, and spend the whole day on them, they'll let you start running. And I understood why, because running was immensely difficult. It was the hardest thing I'd done on prosthetics because effectively you're, you're on two giant springs. Yeah. And you're, these springs, no matter how they set it up, when you're above the athlete, the springs don't want to go forward. They just want to go up in the air. So you've got to somehow generate power and also just put your faith in the gods and lean forward and hope for the best. Uh, and so they are, you know, there is a lot of room for injury and hurting yourself. So, <clears throat> and, and not having the sockets that aren't, aren't working well, you're going to do yourself a lot of damage. So it was, yeah, it was, you know, it was a real, um, as far as the learning curve had gone, I suddenly went almost, most vertical uh, on the learning curve and first time running I was I was thrown up all over the place the amount of energy required to move these things around was unbelievable but I was hooked mm-hmm. I was hooked so I, I thought when I was doing my research after I left the sailing I went I, I think athletics is the way to go if I can incorporate my running legs I think that's where I want to be uh, and I looked around in athletics um, and, I, and I saw, you know, for the, for the double above the amputees on blades, the only options you have are 100, 200 and long jump. And I, and I actually do like the long jump. I actually do. I, I used to like doing long jump before I lost my legs. So I thought, right, let's do that. Um, so I called up British Athletics. I said, hello, I've got no legs. I'd like to do some long jumping. And they were like, what <laughs> are we talking about? I was like, oh, is, sorry, is this not Paralympic Athletics? Well, no, 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 this, this is just British Athletics. You, you probably want to talk to the Paralympic, but I'll put you through. Hang on. And she got me through to the, one of the talent spotters, and she, um, she looked down a list and she said, yeah, double above me, so you're a 61, I think. I know, what did she say? 42 at the time. You were a T42. Uh, long jump. Yeah, we haven't got one of them. That's brilliant. Yeah, come down to one of our talent ID days. We'll, we'll have a look at you. Uh, so I did, I did, and, and I realised I'd sort of made this contact. I just sort of, I was just doing some research. I, I hadn't really, really made it the, the, the leap at that point. So I realised I'd sort of said, "Yeah, great, I can't wait." And then I have thought, "Oh yeah, I haven't learned how to long jump yet. I don't even know if I can." I, you know, I had some blades <laughs> and I've done a bit of running, but I hadn't actually tried jumping. Um, and I was like, oh, but oh, I hope it's possible. You know, I hadn't seen any, I haven't been able to find any videos of it being done or anything. So I started scrabbling around trying to find a long jump pit. Um, and I and I managed to find one locally in a in a little public school around the corner. Uh, but it was a kid's one. So I, I ran down practicing jumping in it, but it was actually too short for me. Uh, and it's not that I was an amazing long jumper, it's just it was a very small pit for kids. 
so I, you know, first couple I landed in the sand and I finally got a grip of it. I landed on the grass behind and really hurt myself. So, so I, uh, so I was like, right, okay, I, I think I know how to jump now. So I, I sort of went with the with the gods and went straight down to this um, talent ID day and just showed them what I thought I could do. Uh, and it was rough. I was, you know, it was, I think it was early 2015. Uh, I didn't look like the most amazing long jumper ever or the best sprinter ever. I mean, I was still, I still had my sailor's build is what I like to call it. I was still a bit tubby from, from sailing uh, because sailing uh, was all about technical work you know it wasn't so much about being physically the best you had to be technically the best you spent all your time just messing around putting lines in by millimeters uh, and what they really wanted from 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 us in the boat was weight they wanted heavy people on the sides because they were such big boats they need a lot of weight to keep them upright and so i i took that as carte blanche to eat, eat and do whatever you want so <laughs> so i had, I had a crack time as a so-called athlete in sailing but I, I was definitely not an athlete's build at that point uh, so when I went over to athletics you know I think they were like he's got potential um, but one you're going to need to lose some weight and two you're going to really have to work on it uh, but she was saying you know they gave me um, they gave me the, the light at the end of the tunnel they said you know uh, Rio is nearly you know a year and a half away at this point it's not out of the realms of possibility you to make it if if you can really commit and get your act together so that was all i needed to hear you know i i just went straight off joined joined a local athletics club bournemouth which i'm i'm still at today i'm still part of bournemouth athletics club i've been for the last seven eight years uh and the coach there uh brian camp who's the long jump coach there i don't think he'd ever seen a blade let alone a double blade runner mm -hmm. and i told him what i wanted to do and he was like yeah all right let's do it you know and Let's see, what, let's see what we can do. And we both were just trying to learn together, just trying to work out how we do this. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we made some big, we made some big gains in that first year. Uh, but I, I then, I then realised um, British Athletics were quite keen that, you know, I had a coach that was um, working with Blade Runners already and sort of in their programme. So I ended up working, moving over to a coach called Roger Keller. Uh, who I'm still with today, actually. Um, um, one thing I am is very loyal. I never, I never move on. You know, if I if I've got someone I like working with, I, I won't leave. You know, we'll we'll go through we'll go through the ups and downs together. But I, I, when I work with a coach, and I still work with Brian as well, I, I I tend to stick. And I know in athletics, it's quite often that athletes jump coaches most years. If they're not having a good year, they blame the coach. You know, they don't they don't look at themselves so much sometimes. <clears throat> so I am. Um, yeah, so I started working with with um, Roger Keller, and um, you know he'd been doing some blade running stuff already with a, with another athlete, um, and so he was like, okay, let's let's see, let's see how you get on, and and we started the journey together as well, and um, you know we we again he was a sprinter, uh, he's not really a long jumper. I, I don't I don't know if he curses me to this day because uh, because of me he sort of had to get more into his long jump, and even though he was. He's a Swiss guy, and he used to compete for Switzerland in the hundred meters. Uh, you know, he says he's a multi-eventer, but he was a sprinter, and he very rarely long jumped. So suddenly, he's got this guy going, "I'm a long jump." So he sort of had to dust off his long jump uh, theory, and now he's sort of like one of the head long jump coaches for British athletics. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if he curses me for that or not, but um, you know, he certainly, he certainly. We've learned a lot together, and you know he's he's a very good coach, and 
he's also really helped out a lot of other athletes that come through the program after me who, who you know have really benefited from you know what we've done together and what what he's able to deliver as a coach so um yeah it's been very good but i mean going back to to jp i i remember um JP obviously supported me through the sailing stuff. He was doing some SNC stuff with me. And I remember, I don't know if he mentioned it on his podcast, but he he was delivering a project called OpSurf, where he was taking um, wounded, injured and sick guys surfing. Uh, you know, and I knew being in the sea uh, as a sailor for so long, I knew how powerful being in the sea is. You know, it's a massive healer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when he, after I finished my, sailing career he sort of he approached me and said do you want to come on one of these observs because you know I, I was probably you know in between sports and uh, hitting a bit of a blank patch in in life so i said yeah yeah i went along on, on the observe uh you know off to california for surfing i was like i bit his hand off for it really and when he, when we were out there together i told him my plans to go over to long jump and i was like do you fancy be an SNC again for for athletics and long jumping, uh, and yeah, he was great. He was like, "All right, are you serious about?" Because, like I said, I still have my my sailor's bod back then, <laughs> so he's sort of looking me up down, going, "We got some work to do here," you know. Um, and yeah, yeah, we've been together on this program ever since. So he again, like like um, like Roger and Brian, you know, we've been we've been we've been the same team right from day one. And uh, you know we, we, we've learned we've learned some lessons. You know we've um, we've definitely attacked this problem from every angle possible, and they've they've seen me through various injuries and competitions and stuff. You know, so it's been it's been a long journey, not just for me, but but the whole team. Um, I even my prosthetist, obviously, because another key person to the team is is someone that makes the legs. Uh, and again, I've had the same prosthetist since day one. Um, he, I met him on the NHS in Portsmouth. Um, what is that? That would have been back in 2014. Um, I remember telling him what I was doing, and he was a bit like, "Oh, this is this is going to be uh, a lot of work, Luke." Uh, and I was like, "I know, I, I totally get that. And if you don't want to do it, I totally understand." And he was like, "No, no, actually, I, unlike a lot of prosthetists, who's really interested in the running blade stuff, it's quite a, it's quite technical." part of prosthetics and even though it's quite simple just building a socket and sticking a blade on there's a lot that goes into how it's positioned the sockets have to be so much better than what someone could tolerate for with walking legs you know a running socket has to be made so well so so well fitted <clears throat> and it has to consider as well that you know your legs are going to be changing shape through all this because all the work you're doing all the muscles are starting to come back on your legs muscles that you weren't using when you were walking uh, and again they've got to let let those muscles activate with, while still holding you tight. So it's a really difficult thing for a prosthetist to get right. And so I think you like the challenge. And I, and I was like, this is brilliant, because I hadn't met many prosthetists that were that keen on running blades. And he was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in this. And when he left and went to the private sector, uh, I, I went over to Bournemouth Prosthetic for, for a little while. And again, fantastic centre. They were really keen to work with the running legs. Uh, and they did a really great job for a couple of years. But as soon as I had an in back with Steve, I went back to, to work with my old prosthetist who was now working for Dorset Orthopaedics. And so I now go and see him up in Egham near London uh, for my prosthetic work. And, and again, we're back on that journey again. And it was great because it was sort of, we got to a certain point when he left <clears throat> and, then I, and then I left. 
uh, and we got to that point and we pretty much just picked up from where we left off. We had some ideas of stuff we wanted to do. And again, you have to get so creative with this stuff. You know, it's not just a case of sticking a carbon socket on someone. There's really creative things that need to go around how we make this work better. Uh, you know, the running blades are very, it's a very fast moving uh, technology at the minute. The running blades are running on, I don't know, 12 years ago when I, you know, or 10 years ago when I first got injured. And they're light years ahead now, 10 years later. And now we're looking at some very serious bits of equipment uh, that if they're not connected well to the, to the socket will absolutely obliterate that socket. Um, you know, there's so much force and twisting moments going through this equipment. Things have to be built really well. Uh, and so it is all problem solving. And being an ex-Royal Engineer, I, I like problem solving. You know, I like I like finding solutions. And, it, and it's a bloody good thing too, because otherwise I'd have probably walked away from this uh, back in back on day one when I when I realised just how much work was involved. That's interesting to, to hear as well, Luke, from your perspective, of just that process of building that team around you as well and getting started in the athletic side. And obviously you had JP come with you as well and then your prosthesis uh, guy as well um yeah it's, it's interesting and like you say as well just keeping that team around you the whole time being loyal to that team as well rather than like you say some athletes who would have one bad season and then instead of looking inwards just like well it's not my fault it's coaching staff and making dramatic changes so i think rather than being like right okay let's weather this out and see what's what really with this yeah no you're right yeah no it's um it, it's a really horrible thing i see it i see it so often um and I, I get sometimes people don't click, mm -hmm. uh, and I, don't get me wrong. You know, I fall out of my coaching staff. Uh, <laughs> it does happen, um, but you know, I think you've got to be grown up enough to realise. You know, everyone's pushing in the right direction. Everyone wants the same result for you. You know, and as as an athlete, and particularly an athlete on prosthetics, it's so easy to blame the equipment, to blame you know the environment, the heat, the weather, you know, it, it, there's so many factors that can affect you. And I think at the end of the day, you, and it helps being an older athlete, you've got to step up sometimes and say, yeah, it's my fault, guys. I made a bad call here. Um, or I just had a bad day. Uh, and, that, and that's tough, uh, you know, because it, it, it can really knock your confidence, particularly if you're, you're young and you're early on. And, and that's hard to recover from. So sometimes it's easier just to take the easy option and say, yeah, it wasn't me. It was it was them. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but I think you find as you know, as athletes get older, they they get better at dealing with that. <laughs> I hope they do anyway. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's interesting, Chan, to you, Luke, and it was something that cropped up when I was chatting to JP originally. Um, you know, we're saying about guys who go through this life changing process of getting injured, why out on service and that, and then obviously within the, the, the military community, you know, PTSD is, is a big thing, but also JP was saying, there's a lot of guys who are going through this post-traumatic growth sort of phase as well, of just like, you know, taking what's happened, seeing the positives and then pushing on for something else down the line, like, and trying to achieve more. And from Chan to you and the stuff, you know, I've looked into that you've done of, you know, going in and to performance sailing, taking up and learn how to fly and now making that move into athletics as well as just, huge huge testament to that mindset as well and you know big question for me now is like you know what's what's next for you do you know where, where do you self, see yourself going next um 
well, I guess, uh, you know, I've still got this, uh, this bug for the athletics and Paralympics. I mean, unfortunately, I got injured just before Tokyo, uh, which is a real kick, you know, to, to go through five-year programme um, and to be at every major championship along the way, right from, right from year one, um, and then fall at the last hurdle for, for injury. It's a real, it's a real bugger, mm. um, and so I think I couldn't walk away with that unticked box. You know, I, I I said to myself back in the hospital bed all those years ago, I'm going to go to a Paralympics, make this a positive thing. Uh, you know, and I, and I think I'd also said to a lot of my guys before we deployed to Afghanistan that you know if you do lose your legs, lads, you know, maybe some some ingest, but there was a bit of truth behind it. I was saying, you know, if you lose your legs, you've got to get yourself to Paralympics, surely. You know, that's and if you do, I'll I'll be there to support you, sort of thing. I'll cheer you on. Uh, so I said that more, you know, to sort of calm their nerves about the whole thing. Um, but also, you know, I, I think that's that's the right that's the right mindset. Um, and so I, I can't let this go. I can't walk away from it unfinished. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'll be pushing for the next three years. I'm, I'm 41 now. I'm, I'm at the older end for, for an athlete now. And also, you know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a sport where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of development going on. So, you know, it's very hard to keep on it all the time. Uh, and it demanding, you know, as far as demands go for a sport, it's very high. You know, running 200 meters on blades is, is really hard. Uh, it's it's a big workload on your body, and so as you get older, it gets harder to recover from. Uh, the training is tough. Um, the competition is tough. And long jumping, throwing yourself into a giant sandpit. You know, young people bounce, old people don't bounce so well. Uh, so you know, it's sort of it's getting it's getting tougher. It's probably why I'm picking up more injuries. Um, but I'm not going to let that go. Uh, so for the next three years, that's definitely what I'm tied into. <clears throat> but I, you know, I'm 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 involved in various projects. One one thing I am quite passionate about is the flying, and I do a lot of flying. Um, I do a lot of actually recruiting and training up new pilots. So over the last four years, five years, I've been running the, the training program and the recruitment program for Flying for Freedom. As I'm, I'm one of their trustees as well, and I've managed to get about. 25 people through the door uh, at least 15 of those are qualified pilots now uh, and that's no easy feat because that's that's dealing with a lot of disabilities a lot of mental health issues as well with the guys that come through the door uh, not to take anything away from them they've done a great job to get qualified as pilots but it's it's tough qualifying as a pilot even without all the physical or mental issues it's tough going through that training it's a big commitment um but the freedom they get once they get their wings, once they get their license and they're free to go flying. So I, I, I've got a lot of work on around that. Um, and we've got some big projects we want to do with that. You know, we want to take these aircraft to America and fly around with some American wounded engine sick guys to show them that flying is a great rehab tool. Um, <clears throat> got some stuff in Asia we'd like to do. And also we'd like to take these aircraft to the South Pole. Um, so, you know, some big, bold, things we want to do but I think you know given COVID sort of changed a lot of things and made people rethink a lot of stuff so I think definitely from uh, a flying point of view and, and taking taking these aircraft to some extreme locations you know that's still our goal 
but I think we're going to have to slow down a little bit of that stuff and see how the world sort of unfolds from COVID. I don't think anyone's going to be in a hurry to be doing it like that. Um, and I think as well, you know, environmentally, everyone's very keen on electric stuff. Air, aviation is starting to go that way a little bit. There are some electric aircraft flying around now. Um, and that's sort of an area we, we might need to start getting into if we're going to go to the greenest place on Earth, Antarctica. <laughs> you certainly want to be doing it from a very environmental point of view. Uh, and even though our aircraft run on unleaded fuel, which is very good in the aviation industry, believe it or not, um, most aircraft run on something called avgas, which is basically leaded fuel, uh, uh, which, you know, I, to this day, I still can't get my head around that, why, how that still happens, because I'm pretty sure we outruled that stuff. But um, anyway, it's going on. Uh, and so we're running on unleaded fuel. It's still, it's still not clean enough, I don't think, for Antarctica. So... You know, we've got some stuff to do there, some, some really interesting development work to do there. Um, I think at some point I'm going to have to go back to work. You know, I, I, as great as it is being an athlete, um, it's, it's not exactly the best paid job in the world. It's one of the best jobs in the world, but not the best paid job in the world. And I've got kids that are getting, I've got three kids now. They're only going to get bigger and more expensive. So I, I definitely, you know, I'm already looking at, getting back into work at the end of um, Paris, potentially. Um, or, you know, I'm just taking every year as it comes now. I'm not, so I'm certainly not going to be fully locked in for three years with, with Paralympics because as, as I've seen from injuries and things, you know, it can be taken away from you in a heartbeat. Uh, so you, you always have redundancy in your program. So I take every day as it comes now. Um, and at the same time, while I'm training and everything else going on, I'm, I'm just trying to develop myself ready for, for a workplace and making contacts and um, working out what I want to do myself, really, uh, as far as work's concerned. Because, um, you know, there's what's really great about being an ex-army officer, being an amputee as well, is that people will want to interview. And I think that's the hardest thing. Definitely before I joined the army, getting an interview was tough. Uh, but once you're coming from this point of view and you've got to use it, you know, you've got to use it but now it's definitely a lot easier to, to get the door open, to get your foot in the door or your prosthetic foot in the door so at least people will, will entertain you um, so I think you've just got to have the right CV now uh, so that's what I'm working on at the minute but um, I, I must admit my ultimate goal though <coughs> I, I am a sailor at heart mm -hmm. and what I really want to do is buy a boat and just sail off around the world that would be my ultimate goal i think that is if i've done that i'll die a happy man yeah so i'm, I'm in the process of uh you know convincing my wife it's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> i've already got the kids learning how to sell um so you know i'm already building the uh the package so that i can do it and i've taken on a few sailing holidays already i've rented a boat for a few days just to get the mindset in it and they all love being on a boat uh, so yeah, that, I think that's been my dream uh, as long as I can remember is to just jump on a boat and sail off around the world. Uh, not everyone's idea of a, a, a great way to spend their life, but for me, I know a few friends that have done it. I think it, it'll be the ultimate thing for me. Mm -hmm. well, that sounds like an awesome, awesome option way to have a nice and free life on there on the waters, dude. And some of those projects yeah. as well just sound incredible. Uh, just that whole recruitment and training of the guys, teaching them how to fly as well. I think that's great great rehab tool for a lot of a lot of individuals mate so it's it's ace uh, to hear that and see how far that will go as well um obviously like you know really inspiring story really great to actually sit down and pick your brain 
just about you know how far you've come and what you've overcome uh for anyone who's listening who you know wants to find out more about your you know step in help support you with either your projects or your athletics uh, goals what's the best way they can do that uh well i'll put it there's uh, there's a website uh i set up years ago www.lukesinner.com uh so you can look on there um and you can get contact details for me uh i mean you can you can follow me on facebook and instagram and twitter and all that stuff what i'm what I'm, I'm actually doing at the moment is i'm actually starting to be a bit more open about my prosthetic experience um mm-hmm. because it's something i think it's something i've always been a bit closed off about because i've always wanted to hide it from my competition because some of <laughs> The people who are the first to like anything I do is normally my competitors because they're trying to see what we're all doing. Okay. And as you can imagine, technology technology is playing a big part in our in our sport. So people are always interested to see what other people are doing. And it's nice to just turn up and people not know and be like, whoa, where'd you get that from? Uh, so I've always been a bit closed off about this whole thing, but I'm actually good, I'm more open about it now. And I think I've got to do that because there are a lot of people that might want to run or you know whether it be competitively or just just starting off running and i've and i've learned a lot over the last several years of playing around in this stuff uh so i've got a lot of knowledge on it now uh and so i'm going to be i've already started posting footage of you know what it takes to be be a a, a blade runner um <laughs> the work it takes not just behind the prosthetics but everything you're doing um and i think you know i've already got some pretty positive feedback on it because i think a lot of people who might have been considering it are either completely put off now <laughs> or they're or they're inspired and want to do it uh so yeah so yeah that, that it's all out there to be seen but yeah if you want to contact me the, the contact details are on the website perfect i'll make sure i stick those in our show notes as well so everyone can reach out to uh once again mate you know thank you so much for being uh so given of your time as well it's really really appreciated bud no problem happy to do it john perfect thanks a lot luke take care buddy bye-bye hi guys really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the monarchy and performance podcast i just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show we're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads which is truly incredible for such a niche specific podcast to continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.